0: Alrighty, howdy everyone! Happy Wednesday! Uh, I don't know what today. What is it? November something or other. November seventeenth. You're watching Unsafe Space. You're watching Dangerous Thoughts on Unsafe Space. I'm Carter, your nerdy philosophy host. Uh, can someone in chat let me know if my audio last? I apologize. Last week my audio was really low and I didn't realize it. So. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if people were scared away by either the low audio or the lengthy discussion of objectivity. <laughs> but either way, I apologize for that, and uh, hopefully my audio is good. Okay, thank you. Thank you, guys, in chat. I uh, appreciate it. Audio is good. All right. Um, by the way, for last week, if you, if you missed it, you can listen to the audio version. I corrected the podcast audio, so it's, the levels are higher. Um, so it's only the YouTube stuff that's low. Um, as a general reminder, the subscribe buttons pronouns here are click and me, so be sure that all of your interactions are properly gendered uh, when interacting with the button. Uh, you can watch us at unsafespace.com. We always live stream there, as well as here on YouTube, Utreon, and Odyssey. So hopefully we're streaming at all those places right now. Welcome to everyone from whom, you know, wherever you're wherever you're watching. I want to shout out, shout out to everyone who supports uh, this show and the other shows that we have on unsafe space uh, financially, uh, really appreciate it. Couldn't do this without you. And the more you guys support us, the more we can uh, bring you interesting content, uh, other hosts that aren't just me about other stuff. Um, you get your name in the credits if you sponsor the show. You also can maybe get a cool grenade mug, depending on how much you sponsor. And uh, you can always go to the website again on space.com. To become officially unpersoned uh, and support the show, or just buy merch if you want to buy merch. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that's enough of the housekeeping stuff, right? I'm so bad at marketing. I know I'm supposed to be the used car salesman telling you guys to throw your money down, but that feels very awkward. Okay. I know I usually do a news story. There's a lot of content that's not related to the news today, so I need to keep the news thing short and. I haven't been paying attention to the news except for the written house case because I'm obsessed with it. I apologize, like that's just I can't, I can't not watch the written house case. Yeah, I did. Thank you, Shiv. I did get a haircut today, and uh, <laughs> the barber. I mean, I'm in the Bay Area. This barbershop shop is based. It's pretty cool. <laughs> so I like illegally didn't wear a mask in the shop and uh. We had a long discussion about the great reset there was a guy in another chair the other day when i was getting my haircut last time that was giving a lecture about uh cryptocurrencies and the fed inflating the currency and all this kind of stuff so um anyway i've been obsessed with this Rittenhouse case uh and i'm gonna try and keep my update on it a little bit short like i said because i got other stuff to cover um, there haven't been a lot of <laughs> updates. The jury retired for the day, so there's no no verdict going on today. Um, the big update was defense filed for a mistrial because it turns out that the prosecution withheld the high-definition version of their drone video that they, one of their key pieces of evidence was this drone video that they enhanced and made claims about. And it turns out they gave, the defense only a low res version. And they waited till the arguments were closed and everything was done before they provided the high res version. And they said, oops, well, we didn't know. I have no idea. Um, the attorneys were like, I don't know how that happened. I'm uninvolved in the video. I don't understand anything about the videos and how they could possibly be one you know, HD versus non HD. But then someone took a screenshot of James Krause's, who's a prosecutorial attorney, his laptop. And there on his laptop, you see he's got a Handbrake, which is a video transcoding software. Uh, which is used uh, specifically to do things like hmm, downgrade a video. Uh, so also, by the way, the protesters are stacking bricks already in Kenosha. Um, so someone asked uh, in chat if I'm watching Rikita Law. I'm not because I don't want to be biased by commentary and I assume, even though I really like Rakita, uh, I assume that they're commenting. I just wanted to see straight up the thing. So I'm watching on Uh, crime and law or law and crime YouTube network, whatever that is. It's just a straight up video feed. Uh, It makes me feel better because I'm not watching through a mainstream media outlet uh, and I don't want the commentary. But uh, yeah, so the processors are starting to stack up bricks, um, which has been verified. I've verified you can hear the police scanner. I might even be able to play it. Maybe, I don't know. You guys want to listen to some police scanner, 30 seconds of police scanner? I don't know how easy it is to hear, but let's see oh uh, well, it's not even playing so there you go after that it's not playing you can hear on the police scanner um the dispatcher asking a couple different officers to check out piles of bricks that are in alleys they do find stuff so that should be that should be fun whenever the verdict does come down I'm sure there will be some mostly peaceful protesting mm. I got I feel like also I have to explain why I'm obsessed by this trial because I was thinking about like why am I so obsessed by the Kyle Rittenhouse trial And I think it's because, to me, it represents uh, the two choices we have as a community in very stark contrast. Um, You can ask yourself, do you want to live in a community that protects rioters, many of them violent felons, all inmates, that protects them while they're burning stuff down and looting places um, and screaming obscenities and threatening people and yelling at them and chasing them down? Do you want to live in a community that protects them from Kyle? Or do you want to live in a community that protects Kyle from the rioters, or even more specifically, doesn't protect Kyle? Uh, one that lets Kyle protect himself from them. Uh, and I think, I think you're seeing which side people fall on that. And I, and I think the people that are making all these cases about the rioters being on the good side and Kyle being the bad guy, I think they would not enjoy living in the world that they want to set up. So. Um, The only other point I want to make tonight about the Rittenhouse trial, and it was something that just, it's been bothering me, and uh, because I see this claim a lot, I see this claim that he, Kyle, kept on shooting after the threat was over. This claim is made in particular to, uh, in relation to the Rosenbaum shooting, the first shooting. Um, And I already talked about, last week I already talked about Kyle's responsibility to maintain possession of his firearm and the moral obligation to do that and how he can't get into a fistfight and all that. So if you want to hear that argument, go ahead. Um, But once he needs to discharge the weapon, he's responsible for that discharge. He's responsible for where that bullet goes. He's responsible for starting and stopping the discharge of the firearm, obviously. Um, And there are rules that he should be following, Kyle. Um, and that main rule is is guided by this principle that the purpose of firing is to stop the threat. It's not specifically to kill. It's not to do whatever. It's just to not to maim, right? It's not for fun. It's to stop the threat. And the argument people are making is he kept shooting. He kept shooting. The guy, as he was falling, he followed him. I think the prosecutor said he followed him to the ground. He tracked him to the ground and kept firing, right? So this argument really bothers me. So let's explain how stopping the threat works. What you do when you make a decision to shoot is you keep shooting until the threat is over. Then you stop. Very simple. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. Now let's talk about some reality. The prosecution argued, like I said, that, um, well, they argued that the threat was maybe stopped after, I don't remember the first or second shot, something like that. They claimed the threat was stopped, he was already falling over. But Kyle kept shooting, that was the argument but we need to bring some reality into this because I hate that I hate that the entire, this thing is, it's like we're in an alternate universe. It's like we're arguing about what should, should have be be coded into a video game where you can pause it. It's so weird. All four of the shots that Kyle fired, he fired four total at, at Rosenbaum. All those four shots happened within the span of 379 milliseconds or sorry, 739 milliseconds. My dyslexia got me 739 milliseconds. Now, the average human reaction time in good light with no stress, blah, 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 is about 250 milliseconds, give or take. It could be longer for some people, you know, and obviously it could be situationally dependent. Um, that doesn't include the time it takes to cognitively process uh, and assess a threat, like decide what am I seeing, what's the decision I make, and then you react, right? So. If you subtract the 250 milliseconds and the cognitive processing time, which we can say we don't know what it is, from 739 milliseconds, he basically stopped as soon as he could. I mean, he, he stopped basically as fast as he could. He didn't keep shooting. That's a lie. And um, and it reminded me of something. And not everyone knows uh, about some things in my past, but I, I did spend some time years ago um, doing some firearms training, and I was at a precision rifle class. It was a week-long – it was actually urban rifle, so it was uh, urban situations, shooting through glass and and extreme angles and that kind of stuff, and hostage situation stuff. So anyway, I did some precision rifle stuff, and it dawned on me – I remembered we did this exercise, this command shoot exercise. And in the exercise, they would – you were already on target, so you didn't have to aim. You're there aimed downrange, and uh, they would take the target and flip it and flip it back. So you had like one second. So you needed to be watching it and on your rifle, and at some point the target would flip and flip back. And you had to make a determination because sometimes it would flip and it would be an innocent, sometimes it would be bad guy sometimes it would be a bad guy like in a hostage situation so you had to hit like part of him you might have to move your point of aim a little bit but um that was the scenario and i i thought to myself i couldn't remember how long they would give us because it wasn't easy like you could do it right but it wasn't easy and the reason i wanted to know that was because i thought well that's an act cuz i couldn't find like studies about how long it takes you to cognitively assess a threat right uh but this was that, this exercise, you had to do that. You had to, it flipped over and you had to decide, is it a threat or not? And then, and then fire and then go away. And I was wondering, like, how long did that take? Because it wasn't easy. And like, I, most of us, I think, were able to do it, but not, I mean, a few people probably couldn't. And it wasn't, it wasn't super easy. So I went, I went down to the basement. I found the old, there's like all this curriculum from this thing. right? <laughs> and I found this performance objective. Um, it's called option target, uh, and I found how long it was. The target was was turned for one second. You had a full second. So in a full second, it was relatively difficult, but possible, if you were paying attention and alert and you focused on this task, to make the threat assessment and make the shot. And again, the shot took almost zero time. You can add in your reaction time counts for the shot, but you didn't have to really aim. So takes almost a second. So <laughs> Kyle's entire interaction here while he's shooting is, is three quarters of a second. Um, so this claim that he kept shooting is just completely dishonest. And I, I don't think it's ignorant. Um, anyone who gives it a moment's thought, with even if they don't have the experience that I have or any of these numbers, anyone who gives this a moment's thought realizes that you can't assess and, and act in zero time. Right? You've got it to process, oh, he's falling, like, what am I seeing? Oh, I'm not seeing him lunging, I'm seeing him falling now. Oh, now I can react, now I can stop, I can lift my finger off of the trigger. Um, it takes you. Anyone on anyone us would realize that it takes some time to assess that, realize the threat's over, stop shooting. And he does all of this from start to finish in three quarters of a second. Um, and it reminds me, we're reading for book club, we're reading, um, what's it called, Handmaid, Handmaid's Tale? By Margaret Atwood. Um, and uh, there was a line that I ran across where she says, ignoring isn't this ignoring isn't the same as ignorance. You have to work at it. And I, I I like that line, and I think in this case, people who are making this argument that he kept on shooting, they're not ignorant. They're willfully ignoring, which is a which is an act of dishonesty here. So that's all I really have to say about Rittenhouse. I'll check through chat and see if uh We'll see if anyone else wants to talk about Rittenhouse at all, and then we can be done and move on. Um all right. Boy, that's a kid's haircut. Yeah, it's fashy, right? I'm told it's a fashy haircut. What do you think? I've already I'm, there's a survey I'm I'm doing on Twitter. So far, the survey says that I'm a um I'm a white supremacist, so I guess I should have a fashy haircut. I don't know if you guys my survey is <laughs> Go take it. Help me to end up not being that. The survey is, if I were to tweet, someone ought to peacefully protest Thomas Binger and Jameis Krauss, would I be, and the choices are, inciting an insurrection, guilty of provocation, looking for trouble, or a white supremacist? And most of the Twitter people think that makes me a white supremacist, so save me. My fascii haircut is is uh, making me look bad. Okay. <sighs> i don't see any uh strong desire in chat to keep keep on dwelling on written house so let's move on so i said last week i wanted to talk about faith and then we did but we didn't uh i postponed it because because i someone made some great uh points in a in a comment and we ended up talking about objectivity which i think was 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 uh was the right choice um but today we're going to talk about faith uh, what, we're going to mostly talk about knowledge claims, actually, but we will address faith. Um, and this is the reason this came up is we had we have an internal. I didn't mention this, but when you're uh, a subscriber, you get to be on our Discord server. But we also, even uh, separate from that, we also have an internal Discord server just for um, the team. And a lot of you probably know Thomas St. Thomas. He's a brilliant, fantastic writer. Uh, for us. He writes on our Medium page and on our Substack page. Uh, he's sometimes in Book Club. Awesome guy. Really like him. Smart guy and an excellent writer. Um, but he <laughs> he's, he spurred a little internal debate the other day uh, in our internal Discord server. Um, he was using the word faith as a synonym for trust and confidence. And Keith, the hack guy, who's also on our internal server, um, were arguing that the word faith, properly used, has a bunch of epistemological connotations, and Thomas understood those. Um, but he said that look, yeah, but a lot of people use faith faith absent from those connotations, and so we can use it in that way too, and should. Um, and I didn't have time in in the at the time to lay my full case out to Thomas. Um, so I left the discussion to Keith and Thomas. I think Keith created a thread. I actually don't know how to end how it ended. I don't know where Thomas or Keith stood at the end of this, but. Uh, I think there's something interesting here, and I want to dive into it, because it's related to some other stuff I wanted to talk about. Um, But to do this, like like I said, the faith part's actually been, I think, pretty straightforward. Um, Many Christians might be dissatisfied with the faith part, (laughs) which is fine. Um, But before I can do that, I I need to talk about some basic epistemology. Um, And then I'll talk about what, what faith is in the epistemological context. And then, since Thomas isn't here to defend himself today, I'll argue my case for how we should be using the word. Uh, and he can write an article later about how horrible I am and wrong. And I'm sure it'll be beautifully written. And we'll put it on our website. All right. So let's talk about evaluating assertions. Um, every conclusion that we draw in our mind, every conclusion that we hold, everything that we Hold as a truth, it begins as a tentative assertion about reality. It begins as a proposition, um, and I'm not going to go into logical deduction today. I'm not going to, you know, p implies q, q implies p, therefore p implies, or sorry, I said that wrong. Whatever, p implies q, q implies s, therefore p implies s. I'm not going to go through logical deduction, um, but it, but you can think of it kind of as like, like a proposition. It it comes to mind somehow, right? So let's, as an example, like the thought, it's five o'clock, comes to mind. Maybe someone tells us it's five o'clock. Maybe we just think of it ourselves. Is it five o'clock? It's five o'clock. I'm considering this very trite piece of information. It's five o'clock. Now, regardless of how that thought gets into our mind, it prompts us uh, to do something. We have to do something. The, the, the idea, it's five o'clock, is in our heads. We must act on it. Um, but we haven't yet evaluated, we haven't evaluated the veracity of this. This is just an assertion about reality. It's an assertion. Um, we haven't decided whether it's true or not. Um, and that assertion could come with some hidden premises attached to it, depending on the context, right? It could be local time, or, right, that could be an implicit thing. It could be, well, we don't mean down to the microsecond, but I mean around five o'clock. That's kind of implicit in, this, in the concept I'm thinking of, right? But we are forced by reality to do something about the assertion. Right, we, there's, we actually have no choice. Reality forces us to do something about that thought that popped into our head. And fundamentally, we can only really do one of two things: we can accept it or reject it. Right? There's not really a third option. And I'm using the word "reject" here explicitly to mean not accept. And we'll get into. I know there's people will make arguments that there's a third option. We'll get into it, but we can accept or not accept. Those are the two choices. That's it. Uh, right? Logically, accept or not. That's the in- entirety universe of options. Um, Now, some people might say, well, we can postpone the decision about whether it's true or not and think about it later. Uh, Yeah, we can, but that's a rejection. It's a rejection um, because it doesn't get accepted as true, right? Uh, It's a rejection plus an agreement you've made to yourself to think about it later, right? Okay. You could say, well, I could accept it provisionally. Like, yes, also, you could do that. But that's an acceptance plus a promise to yourself or an agreement uh, to yourself to face the question again uh, later. You might say, I don't know. Now, that that's a rejection because it's five o'clock was not already part of your integrated knowledge base. You know, we've, we talk about conceptual hierarchies or integrated knowledge bases. It wasn't already there. You're choosing not to add it and integrate it. Therefore, it's a rejection. It's kind of the same as I'll postpone it and think about it later, except that um, you may never resolve it. Uh, you may always just not know. You might say, Well, I refuse to think about it. I want to evade the possibility that it's true. I want to evade any thought about it. Well, that's fine. That's a rejection. It's like that old adage, uh, deciding not to decide is a decision, or something like that. I'm paraphrasing it. So if you accept, let's leave us leave aside why. But If you're going to accept this thing as true, and you're rational, you you necessarily, along with that acceptance, comes the acceptance of the responsibility for uh, performing some rational cognitive function in order to accept this. You've got to integrate it into your existing mental model of the world. So you have to test it against existing data. You have to resolve contradictions with your existing model that you have of the world. Um, And you have to resolve, obviously, any contradictions with observed data. Um, but of course you are not obligated to be rational, right? You can accept it as true and, but refuse to integrate it into your existing model, right? You can say, I'm going to accept it as true and I'm going to hold it as true, even though it may contradict other things that I hold as true, either because I know it does, or I just haven't looked, I don't want to, I'm going to hold it as true, even though it contradicts, uh, like either my mental model or observed data, right? You, you, you're free to do that. I, I, it's a mistake. And I think if it's done intentionally, it's actually immoral. But you you can choose to do that. You're right. You can choose to accept that. Um, you can choose to say healthcare is a right, but not to bother to evaluate what you mean by right. Um, to just evade thinking about it, or 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 what right depends on, or or how healthcare is provided and to whom. You can evade all of those questions and just say I accept healthcare as a right. Also, I'm an individualist who loves freedom and and I believe in personal responsibility. Like you can say all those things and. That you can you can you're allowed to have a contradictory uh, set of beliefs. It's just not it's not a good idea. It's not good for you. I think if you do it intentionally, it's immoral. So you're you're free to evade performing, but performing that kind of analysis. But you're not free to escape the consequences of holding multiple contradictions in your head simultaneously as true. Um, and I think Ayn Rand is credited with saying. Uh, we can evade reality, but we cannot evade the consequences of evading reality. Um, so that's what's going on here. You, you, you can do that, but you can't avoid the consequences. So we can either accept or reject that uh, the assertion uh, "it's five o'clock" is 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 true, right? Um, now, the level of analysis that we bring to a decision here is. Um, contextual it depends like we don't we don't always treat everything like it's this huge proposition that needs to be explored and integrated consciously and checks with a bunch of data we, we do use shortcuts or cheat codes sometimes right we can't carefully deliberate every little decision that comes to our mind or that we encounter in our daily lives every day we, that would be absolutely debilitating it we would we, we, we would be stopped on our tracks we couldn't function like that so we do need shortcuts and shortcuts are fine shortcuts allow us to bypass kind of the rigor um and but but what we do have to do is we have to make a decision about how much effort to put into our analysis right um and that decision we might make over time even subconsciously but you know the the analysis of whether to accept a proposition as true or not takes time and energy right everything's a trade-off you could always be doing something else Uh, and you have to decide again you might not do this consciously but you have to decide how much shortcutting can I get away with here and you usually make that decision based on from what I can tell you you, there's basically three inputs to that decision the importance of the information right so how much does it matter to you that it's five o'clock is true right um are you at risk for missing a flight that you need to take to go get your kidney transplant to save your life, well, then it's really, really, really fucking important whether 5 o'clock is true or not, right? If you're just wondering whether you should start dinner, it's maybe not that important, right? Um, another factor that people factor in generally, I think, is, is the expected time or effort that's needed to integrate this into our knowledge base, right? Um, did you just look at the clock a few minutes ago and it said 4.56? That's easy to integrate, like someone then saying 5, you know what i already have it fits easily with my contextual knowledge there's not a lot of work that needs to be done there it fits easily with the data um but did you just look at the clock a few minutes ago and it read three fifty-six? that might take a little bit more integration because it feels like you just looked at the clock three minutes ago but now here you are over an hour later what's going on that might be that you had daylight savings and you forgot to change the clocks or whatever it requires a little bit more analysis right um Are you certain that five minutes ago the clock, it was noon and you're certain of it five minutes ago and now you're being told it's five o'clock? Well, that might take a lot more effort. (laughs) I don't know what's going on, right? Who knows? Um, And that could potentially be more complex. So the expected time or effort needed factors into your decision to make a shortcut or to do the full analysis. And the source, and I know people are gonna say this is a genetic fallacy, and it is um, because we don't use shortcuts in communicating and convincing other people. So if you use it to convince other people, it is a fallacy. But internally, if you need to use, if you need to consider the source, that's okay. Provided that the information isn't super important and it's easy to integrate. So an example, um, if there's no, you know, an example of of the importance of the statement, it's five o'clock. If there's no major event in my life that pivots around it being five o'clock, okay, maybe I could consider using a shortcut. If the integration time, I think is is gonna be short and easy because i know that it's kind of probably around five o'clock already. And if the source is I casually asked my wife um, and she said it's five o'clock, well the result might be I'll just accept it as true without much thought. And again, this, this doesn't happen consciously necessarily. Um, I'm just gonna automatically accept, accept it and that's rational. It's okay. Like I don't again, I'm not required to go around like a computer and like analyze everything. Um, it would, like I said, it would be debilitating and, and neurotic to go, you know, if I had to go check through different atomic clocks every time my wife told me what time it was, I, you know, I'd probably get divorced. Um, it would indicate a last, lack of trust in our relationship, and it would drive us insane. Now, of course, if I find out later that she's been lying to me about the time for years for some a nefarious purpose, then maybe I might reconsider accepting her, her time stamps, uh, and I might reconsider my marriage. But shortcuts are just that. They're just shortcuts. That's all they are. You can't always use them, um, and as the validity of as the uh, the importance of that validity of assertions the assertions increases, right? So as the, as that importance increases or our trust in a source diminishes, we have to stop using shortcuts. Um, so for our purposes on this show, I just wanted to get that part out of the way because people are going to be like, "You can't analyze everything like this." Like, no, you can't, and that's that's what we're giving credence to. Um, But for the purposes of this show and our discussion, we need to abandon shortcuts, right? We are ultimately responsible for our own judgment. We must, as I said, practically outsource stuff sometimes using shortcuts. But when it matters, when it really matters, when we're having philosophical discussions or making real arguments, trying to make statements about reality that affect, you know, culture and, and huge, they affect everything, right? Philosophic statements affect everything. We need to step up to the plate. We can't just, you know. Yeah, someone tweeted that, so I assume it's true. Okay, so on this show, um, we're gonna we're not gonna talk uh, about shortcuts, we're gonna talk about conscious evaluations, not taking shortcuts. And you know, we're not interested in unimportant assertions about whether it's five o'clock or not. Um, so and we're not gonna delegate responsibility to someone else. So before I move on, let me just there's a super chat I want to read and make sure I get to it, so it doesn't stroll off the screen. Scroll off the screen. Screen. Uh, I'll fight you naked. Says sorry. I thought these ones were pre-recorded. Oh, you don't have to apologize. Welcome. Um, all right. So uh, yeah, these are not pre-recorded. Maybe they should be. It'd probably be easier for me, but I would just I would edit it too much because I would say, well, I could say that better, and I should fix this. So this is easier. All right. So let's talk about consciously evaluating assertions. Um, so you have got this proposition in your head, it came to you, or someone told you, or whatever. What conclusions can you reach? What are you? What are the categories of conclusions you can reach? I know this sounds really simple, but it's important to walk through. Well, you could decide it's true. Let's talk about what that means. Um, now. Contrary to what some people will tell you, I, I I would argue that truth does not change over time. Knowledge doesn't change over time. It is contextual. It's based on the context of knowledge at the time. True, like saying something is true, it's in a, it's an evaluation of correspondence to observed reality, and it must be observed reality. It can't test against unobserved reality. Things you couldn't possibly know and don't know, right? It's a it's a which makes truth contextual. So the standard for truth is not truth compared to the knowledge of some imaginary omniscient creature that knows everything, but truth compared to our context of knowledge at the time. So let me give an example that a lot of people like to say. A lot of people will say Newtonian physics was debunked by Einstein, or that it was proven false by Einstein and replaced with with Einsteinian physics. I reject that as a characterization. That is not true. Newton's context was the world of ordinary observable objects, right? Sizes that we normally encounter, speeds that we normally encounter. Um, What Einstein did was look beyond that context. He looked at um, extremely small things, extremely fast things. Um, So Newtonian physics is just a special case of Einstein. Einstein's the broader concept which engulfs Newtonian physics. Uh, Einsteinian physics is the broader, right? But the context of Newton, he wasn't saying, I'm absolutely sure that this is how quarks work. He didn't know what a quark was. Um, And I'll even say, I'll go so far as this, I will even (laughs) say, Ross says, ugh, epistemology. Sorry, Ross, that's what you're here for, buddy. Suck it up. Uh, (laughs) Epistemology is important. I would say even Ptolemy, not remember, Ptolemy is the one with the geocentric model of the universe, um, hold on, actually he didn't, he looked at things that had been known for years and interpreted them in a new way. Ha <laughs> yeah, he, he wants to diss on Newton. We're giving Newton credit, we can put the argument about Newton's originality aside. So even Ptolemy, though, I would say, is still true in a very limited sense. Ptolemy, again, is the, the geocentric model of the universe, right? Um, if we, if we constrain ourselves to, to the very limited context, much more primitive context uh, in the time of Ptolemy, we actually still use terms that are Ptolemaic in some way, right? We say the sun rises and sets. Sun doesn't rise and set, we're spinning. That's not accurate, right? Um, from the ordinary perspective of, of everyday life, a lot of people say, well, the sun moves around us, it goes from there, you know. In my house, it goes from there to there. right? I'm facing west right now, so it goes from here to there. That's what happens. Um, And if the scope of the task you need to perform is sufficiently limited, you can still operate using the Ptolemaic model. You can move plants from the other side of the room. Like, hey, when the sun's over here, I want to move the plant there. Like, you, You just think in terms of the sun moving around you. It's totally fine. It's not fine for getting to the moon or doing a whole bunch of other things. It's fine for very simple tasks because the context was very simple, right? And then obviously Copernicus came along and said, actually, this is better, and then Galileo and whatever. So yeah, now we can get to the moon and and launch Teslas into space. You couldn't do that with Ptolemy, but that's not the context of knowledge for which Ptolemy is applicable. All right. (laughs) Greg, Greg the baritone says, just don't say that the earth revolves around the sun, which I just did, because I read your comment. YouTube will label it disinformation and demonetize you. <laughs> yeah, I know. All right. So, if something's gonna qualify as true, given all that context of knowledge stuff, if you're gonna qualify something as true, there's, I think there's basically just two requirements that you need. One is an evidentiary requirement, um, and the other one is an integration requirement. And the evidentiary requirement is pretty straightforward. You've got a sufficiency of supporting evidence, inductive information, information you could use to make an induction, right? You got a, a sufficient, theoretically, you have a, a lot of supporting evidence for it. you got a sufficient amount. And what sufficient amount is, obviously is is open to interpretation, and we can deal with that in another show. But you've got a sufficient amount of data that you say, okay, there's sufficient supporting evidence for this. You have a lack of contradictory evidence, right? You can't be like, well, I know some evidence that's contradictory, but the evidence supporting it outweighs, therefore it's true. It's like, well, no. It, contradictory evidence, like you only need one piece and then you're, you've fallen apart. So, um, you know, the moment that someone realized that Newtonian physics didn't work in some case, that's when they were like, oh, this is no longer a complete description of physics. We need to do something else, right? Um, And... uh. If, if this sufficient amount of evidence and lack of contradictory evidence rises to some level of certainty that you feel like you can use the word no, that we think, I won't say feel, that you think you can use the word no, right? Um, then you can call it a truth. Now the word no, like objectivity, if you wanna, you know, it's similar, so go watch last week's episode if you haven't. The word no doesn't require omnipotence. It's, it's, it's shorthand for a state of confidence, right? It's a statement of confidence to say I know right? It's not a, it's not, you're not measuring it against, like, some objective, I have means of knowing this outside all of the possible means that humans could possibly have to know anything, which is necessarily flawed and contextual, and the knowledge is limited. Like, that's not what no means. No is a statement of confidence. I know this. It's a statement of confidence. Um, and, you know, to the philosophers who will say, well, you never really know anything, Right. That just—it's just a silly statement because it—it's it, an attempt to get, negate the word "know" itself, uh, but it also undermines its own argument because anyone speaking that is presuming that we know what the sounds coming out of their mouths mean. So you can't be like, "Well, you can't know anything." It's why well, do you know that? And how do you like? Well, you're communicating to me. You're presuming that I know what the hell you're talking about. Clearly, we can know some things. So shut up. Uh, that's just silliness. Um. So anyway, so that's the evidentiary requirement. It's pretty straightforward. And then there's an integration requirement, which uh, which relates back to our concept hierarchy that we've talked about several times. This new knowledge needs to be able to integrate without contradiction into your knowledge base. And if there are contradictions, you need to resolve them. Once you've resolved those contradictions and you've met the evidentiary requirements, you can say this thing is true. It's true. That's it. That's, that's how you call it true. All right. I'll Fight You Naked says, I would love to debate you on some of this, but it would cost me a fortune by Super Chat. <laughs> well, maybe you should come on a show sometime. Uh, I'll fight you naked. Um, and by the way, as I've said always, uh, I have enjoyed, there have been uh, people, in fact, last show was, uh, I think the, it was the last episode that was was a response to someone who corrected stuff that I, had said and, and made maybe it was the show before that but i think it was the last show they corrected they corrected things and criticized me on some stuff and they were they were right to do it and and i changed so just write a write yourself a, a good couple paragraphs or or propose to come on the show i'll fight you naked all right um but we have to be not naked on the show if that's okay all right so you can have so the other category I have you can say well it's not true right I've made this the statement, this this proposition is, is not true. And I'm gonna argue here, and this might be a little bit unusual, uh, or you might not be expecting this. There are two subcategories of not true. Let's cover the one that you are familiar with first. That's false, it's false. Um, and to say something's false, you have to say, well, given the context of our knowledge, at least one of the requirements fails. The, or sorry, the uh, evidentiary requirement or the integration requirement fails. So either um, there's an evidentiary failure. Uh, maybe you've got, you don't have sufficient, um, or maybe you do. Maybe you have some contrary evidence that's sufficient, right? So for example, um, someone says, the sun moves around the earth in a zigzag pattern from north to south pole, making it 58 zigzag, zigzags per revolution. All right. That's a pretty specific claim. I've got lots of contradictory evidence. I'm gonna call that one false. I can, because it's gonna fail that evidentiary claim. You could just have a lack of supporting evidence, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's uh, evidentiary failure. You can't claim it's false just because you don't have supporting evidence for it. Um, We'll get to that case, though. Or you could have uh, an integration failure. And this is kind of similar to an evidentiary failure, since your evidence should be integrated into your knowledge base. So you could kind of collapse them into one thing. But we kind of talk about that concept hierarchy and your knowledge base separately. So let's talk about it separately. It might be more subtle. So someone might say, well, nights are generally warmer than days. Um, and we're not talking about on some weird planet or some you know particular microclimate somewhere or in, in your basement where you turn heat lamps on at night. But if someone's making the statement, nights are generally warmer than days, you can say, well, I can reject that, not because, I mean, you could argue that I've got a bunch of evidence, but also I understand that the sun shines and produces heat and the heat hits the earth and it doesn't hit the earth where I am during the day, or sorry, at night, it only does it during the day, so I'm gonna reject that it wouldn't integrate. Sorry for the baby in the background. A lot of you know we just had a, had a newborn, so sometimes she wants to contribute to these discussions. Um, so yeah, that would be an integration failure. So you get that evidentiary failure or integration failure, you can say, "Hey, this thing's false done." However, there's another category of non-true and uh, and I'm going to call this category arbitrary. Uh, if you'll notice that true the true false dichotomy they not cover all the cases as, as I defined it. I mean, I'm sure people could come up with other vocabulary and do it, but this is what makes sense to me. Um, it, that, the definition we just walked through, it leaves out the case where there's not enough supporting evidence and there's not enough contradictory evidence. There's not enough evidence, right? So there's, there's basically, if you think about it, there's like kind of four claims. You think of like a truth table. You could have sufficient supporting evidence, but not enough contradictory evidence. That's true. You could have insufficient supporting evidence and sufficient contradictory evidence. That's a False. Uh, or it, it fails your evidentiary test it might still be it might uh yeah it fails your evidentiary test uh you could have sufficiency of supporting evidence and sufficiency of contradictory evidence uh that you usually say fails the evidentiary test however um we'll we'll, we'll get into that in a minute but that's that's a weird case because reality shouldn't have contradictions right um, but the case that we're going to talk about right now is you have insufficient supporting Evidence, uh, and you have some contradictory evidence, um, and this is called an arbitrary assertion. And actually, you can you can say this can be true for just insufficient supporting evidence generally, um, regardless of how much uh, contradictory evidence you have. You can call this an arbitrary assertion. Um, this is a statement that doesn't even rise to the level of falsehood. It's not. It doesn't rise to the level of of qualifying with enough data to determine truth or false. So, for example, I could say there's a planet orbiting Atlas, which is a star in the Pallades cluster in which there's an underground river, and in that river, there's a purple trout right now. Now, remember, knowledge is contextual. It is possible someday uh, that you could decide whether that assertion is true or false you could classify it you could travel there and look and there are no rivers or whatever there's no planets orbiting the star you you say it's false or maybe you find a trout um but given our current context there's no evidence to support this right i've said it but that's not evidence um there's no evidence against it right you can't can't prove a negative right so if i said prove that's not true there's no evidence against it you could use. Um, that's what we call an arbitrary assertion. It doesn't even rise to the level or, of, of, of evaluating to false. It's still not true, that's how I think of it. It's not true, but I don't call it false. Um, so arbitrary assertions can be dismissed out of hand. There's not enough data, you can dismiss them out of hand. No analysis is necessary, and people who demand that you consider arbitrary assertions seriously are philosophical trolls, right? Um, because they can only serve to waste your time and your cognitive energy, and maybe attempt to confuse you. Right? Uh, there's no, there's no, there's an, there's no, there's no reason to do it, right? The purpose, the purpose of them asking you to consider an arbitrary assertion is to foist some untruth upon you by getting you to consider. Uh, the assertion as possible, and then that kind of creates this little branch in your concept hierarchy, and they're going to try and hang other conclusions off that branch that might contradict the rest of your knowledge, and you haven't fully integrated it because you didn't really consider it true, you just kind of considered it possible, and maybe, and I'm considering the assertion, um, you know, and there are conclusions that will lead you to take the behavior they want, right? It's It's not, there's no reason to do that, and th- there's an infinite number of arbitrary assertions, right? I could say that fish on atlas on the river on atlas has 1047 scales no no it's 1048 scales right like there's an infinite number of arbitrary assertions they can make so someone runs up to you and yells an arbitrary assertion at you you have no obligation to even respond um and there is a common and special case of arbitrary assertions that you see a lot um especially in uh sciences when they're trying to debunk something and this is the no null hypothesis right this is when the Assertion is set up in such a way that contradictory evidence is not possible by definition, right? So an example of this assertion is we're living in a perfect simulation, right? There's no possible null hypothesis there. Everything I would do is, well, this proves it not. This proves it not. No, no, they just they thought of that, and they they programmed that in. Like, it doesn't matter. There's no possible null hypothesis for that. Um, it's fun, right? it's fun for movies and, and douchebag philosophers who aren't smart enough to write science fiction movies. It's fun for them to think about and it's fun to watch, Like I, I like the matrix, but it's an arbitrary assertion. All right, so if there's no null hypothesis, uh, you can just move on. Uh, and, I, and I do want to underscore something just in case you guys think of it. This is different from a philosophic axiom, right? Axioms are not no null, 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 null hypothesis. Because you, you might think, well, you can't disprove an axiom. That's true, but what makes an axiom different is axioms must be accepted in order to deny them, right? They must be accepted in order to deny them. You don't have to accept that you're living in a matrix in order to deny that you're living in a matrix. Um, and often, you can ask people like, oh, what piece of evidence could I find that would disprove this assertion for you? And a lot of times, they just don't have an answer, because there is none. They, they've set it up so they have a null, no null hypothesis. Um I just want to make a note on supporting evidence. Um supporting evidence for a claim needs to be external. And what I mean by that is uh personal experiences, emotions, revelations, just knowing it's not evidence. You're free to consider that evidence personally. Uh, I would advise against it. Um, it is evidence how you feel, and it should be considered in that respect. I wouldn't take it as evidence of anything existing external in the real world. But you're free to do it, I guess. Uh, I just don't, I don't think it's, I would advise against it. I don't think it's, it's right. Um, but it's never evidence in a discussion with someone else. When you're communicating to the external world, you have to appeal to the external world, right? Um, Anything you say that's about your internal world, your experience, there's no null hypothesis for that for me. I can't have any direct knowledge of your experience. So you're not providing evidence. So some examples. It's my lived experience that math is racist. All right, well, that's nice. Enjoy your lived experience. You've not made a statement about reality. You've just made a statement about how you feel, right? Someone's—I had a divine vision about trout on a planet orbiting Atlas, right? You can say, "Well, I don't care, Carter. That's nice, but I'm gonna move on, right?" It's good for you. It's not a statement about like there's—you haven't provided any external evidence. There's no null hypothesis. There's nothing. Um, I could say, "Well, when I considered how much Prometheus—I just read uh, Prometheus uh, Bound recently by Aeschylus," so. I could say, well, when I considered how much Prometheus really loved humanity, it changed my life, and now I'm happier. Therefore, Prometheus is real. That's nice. I've shared my feelings. Haven't given you any evidence. Um, When Someone says, well, I'm afraid what the world will look like without the FDA. That's nice. It's not evidence. It's evidence that you're afraid. So assertions with internal evidence only are just still in this category of arbitrary. Uh, Unless there's... Sufficient contradictory evidence, in which case you can classify them as false, right? So if I say, I feel the sun moves in this zigzag pattern, blah, 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 you can blame, No, nope, I have contradictory evidence. So it's not even, it's, it's, uh, it's not arbitrary. It's moved into false. Um, for both uh, the cases of uh, both supporting and contradictory evidence, remember there's that one case that I said was weird and shouldn't occur in reality because reality doesn't have contradictions. And you say well there's both supporting and contradictory evidence for this you might conclude i don't know um which is really not a conclusion um you know I, I said that if you didn't have both of those things if you didn't have sufficient contradictory or supporting evidence it's usually uh a failure to meet the evidentiary standard and which usually is false and that's because your knowledge base is usually complex enough and robust enough so that when something contradicts the whole of your knowledge base, you can throw it out and be like, no, 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 that I got a little bit of that, a little bit of this, whatever. However, sometimes your knowledge in an area is sparse and there's uncertainty and you kind of conclude, well, I don't know, right? This contradicts some things I know. There's some evidence for it, some evidence against it. I kind of, I'm in an I don't know area and that's okay. Some examples of that are, for me, are wave particle duality. Like, I don't understand it. It's contradictory. Um, And I, by the way, I'm someone who took graduate level quantum mechanics classes. Like, philosophically i don't understand it right like i don't i'm not sure i understand i might be able to calculate the probability that a particle appears outside of a box somewhere but like i i don't know philosophically like what the hell's going on there um and that's okay that's okay i've i've, I've even talked about the ambiguity for me of or the lack of clarity for me on uh abortion right where i'm certain it's wrong and you know at this end and probably okay here but i'm not like i can't make a clear argument about it so i don't know um and so you can think of i don't know as kind of the processing that little processing animation on your iphone that's just like turning forever right it just means i'm still evaluating i have not reached a conclusion something's wrong right the analysis has become too complex for me um so uh that's how i think of that category when you've got like conflicting information it's like eh, analysis is too complex we know it can't resolve this way you can't have a contradiction reality we know that but something's broken and the analysis is too complex um but note that i don't know is not the same as having no information at all about something so an arbitrary assertion can just have no information like my trout on on atlas right to say i don't know you need to have some information it's just meager or confusing information, right? Um, so, and you know, your look, your cognitive process is not a perfectly accurate, and instantaneous computer. You're just stuck on a problem, and that's okay. Um, and it might be a low priority for you to do the analysis. It's complex; you got other things to think about. That's fine. Um, so, uh, so that's what it means to kind of I quote conclude. You're not really concluding. but I don't know. It means I'm not. I'm not doing the integration. Um, don't conflate I don't know and by the way that doesn't integrate it's a non-truth right because it doesn't integrate truths are the things that integrate and you've now adjusted your model of the world it's still a non-truth um don't conflate this I don't know with the sense that we use the phrase I don't know when people ask for a piece of information so I'm I'm talking about like I don't know what conclusion to draw not I don't know where Isabella Johnny lives right like those are one is a statement about the what you have in your stored knowledge and the other one is like a processing failure Whew. all right so in summary of that section here there's I just because I know there's a lot there um, there's three conclusions you can draw in analyzing assertions I'm throwing out the I don't know stuff that says not a conclusion that's a still processing right um, so there's three conclusions you can draw when you when you're faced with an assertion you can decide it's true you can decide it's false or you can decide it's arbitrary false and arbitrary are not true So it's true or not true, and the categories of not true or false and arbitrary. So you would say, Carter, your trout assertion is arbitrary, so it's not true. Um, Your assertion about the zigzagging sun is false, demonstrably false. Uh, And your assertion that it's five o'clock on, well, who knows, maybe it's true. Actually right now it's 5.54, that's true. Okay, in California. So with that background, which seemed overly complex for what what turns out to be kind of that simple summary. Um, but I think it was necessary. At least it was necessary for me to think through. So, sorry. Let's talk about faith. Um, concluding that something is true of an assertion involves reason. And it involves reason exclusively. Uh, reason as I've said before, is the art of non-contradictory identification. We've talked about what reason is. We've talked about it as it a process of gathering evidence and integrating it into your existing knowledge base, resolving contradictions, right? Those are all part of the reasoning process. Those are the That's the process you're using to evaluate a statement. So normally when someone concludes that something is true, we assume they mean using reason, right? Because that's the only way that you can validly claim something's true. Um, so that's what we assume, right? Uh, as a side note here, I want to make this clear. Reason is not the same as a logical proof. Of course, a logical proof is an example of using reason. That is true. But not every reasoned conclusion is logically proven, right? Those aren't the same thing. So don't get your head wrapped around the axle because you're like, well, I can't prove this. So therefore, have I reasoned it? I don't know, what process did you follow? If you followed the process we just talked about, then yes, you reasoned it, right? So you might have a lot of rational reasons, for example, for concluding that capitalism is superior to socialism, but proving it logically is just a monumental te- monumental task that you're just not up to, right? It's still a reasoned position. It's still reasoned. You might trust your wife to not lie about the time. Now, maybe you can't logically prove that she won't, but you got a lot of evidence Based on your experience with her, and you have come to kind of a reasoned conclusion that she can be trusted to tell you the correct time. Right. So don't make that mistake of conflating reason with logical proof. Right. I guess the final example is you know, you can't prove gravity. Right. But you can be reasonably sure that if you jump off your roof, you'll get hurt or worse. Right. So you're still, it's still, it's still reason that you're using to make the decision about not jumping off the roof. However, sometimes people want to assert, and sometimes people actually conclude conclude that something is true without using reason, or without using reason exclusively, right? So in other words, they're asking you to accept a non-truth, doesn't need to be a falsehood, but a non-truth as true. Now, usually this is an arbitrary assertion, not an outright falsehood, because outright falsehoods are kind of They're more difficult to get honest people to accept, right? Um, Because there's like evidence that's contradictory right away. Uh, Someone asked if CERN proved gravity a couple years ago. I didn't think that it was proven, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is a dated (laughs) show already, and it's been proven. Um, Think of another your 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 next favorite uh, unproven uh, scientific theory that we know works. Anyway. uh, so, like I said, the outright falsehoods are usually harder to convince honest people of. So, um, so usually they're trying to get you to uh, accept an arbitrary assertion uh, as true. And I'll give I'll give two examples. One will trigger some people. One example is we're living in a matrix. Like I said before, that's an arbitrary assertion. Another one is there is a god. Those are arbitrary assertions, right? Um, now, interestingly. I have noticed, I was thinking about this, and I've noticed that the, the Church of Woke, the Woke cultists, actually break this rule about usually trying to assert arbitrary assertions as true. They really like to push falsehoods. They really like outright falsehoods that honest people can reject, like math is racist or Rachel Levine is female. They're really interested in like, I'm going to try to get you to accept something that's true not not as true not not that's arbitrary but that's like demonstrably false um but anyway uh if you're asserting without reason you're asking someone to accept non-truth as true and usually it's an, an emotional motivation for whatever reason that's fine um now look rational people might not like that other people ask them to accept non-truths as true but they do that's a fact of reality we have to to deal with that and we need a word to describe the mental process that's used to justify this i'll call it an ersatz truth right it needs to be an epistemological word it needs to be a word that can mean not reason or not exclusively reason right and we have a word for that that word is faith that's what that means Um, faith is the belief in something apart from or contrary to reason because right? if only reason were employed in reaching a conclusion, you wouldn't need to use the word faith. We don't need to say, I have faith that 2 plus 2 is 4. We can just say, I know 2 plus 2 is 4. right? Because the truth was arrived at using a process of reason. We only need it when we use something else. Right? It's, it's only when we deviate from using reason that we need to introduce a concept to describe the mental process that took place. And that word, it's a very inclusive word, is faith. Right. So um, we can define it using the the format that we use on this show uh, of placing it in oops, placing it in the concept hierarchy where it it's, belongs to uh, a broader category and differentiated from its peers. Uh, I would say faith belongs to the broader category of something like cognitive processes of propositional evaluation. Okay. It's a long, long phrase. It's differentiated from the other members of the category by use of means apart from or contrary to reason. That's it, it's pretty simple. Um, and I know there have been a lot of Christian thinkers, some of whom I like, uh, that have attempted to integrate reason and faith together. St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, John Locke, um, even Tertullian who a lot of atheists uh, use as an example of someone who doesn't try to in- integrate faith and reason. I don't think that's a, an accurate representation of uh, what he thought. I think he, I think he did want to integrate the two. Oh, Ross says his CERN comment was a joke. Okay, they haven't proven gravity. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not up on physics. Who knows? Maybe some smart kid at CERN proved gravity. Okay. Um. So look, there are a lot of Christian thinkers who who, who do try and, and and integrate this too. But notice that that reason has no need to integrate with faith, right? There's no reason for reason to consider faith. Um. We only need to use the word faith when we're talking about a cognitive process used to reach a conclusion apart from or contrary to reason. That's it. It's the only reason we need it. So, um, I think the attempts to rationalize uh, or it's kind of integrate the two are rationalizations. I think they're attempts to to rationalize uh, based on a desire to to rationalize their faith. Like they, they're they're trying to say well they're related because they want they want the faith to be rationalized because it's uncomfortable to tell people well i use the process apart from reason right um and uh, and atheists i i, I don't mean state theist state theists as as most atheists are um <clears throat> i mean actual rational atheists atheists don't need to rationalize the use of use of reason by explaining how it's really just an extension of faith or it there's some sort of delicate balance between the two or whatever, like that's not necessary. They don't have to talk about faith, um, except in this context, right? Uh, It's the people who argue from faith who find it necessary to justify using reason. Now, not all of them. There are some Christian uh, thinkers whom I respect and I like uh, for this reason. They will straight up argue that faith is unrelated to reason. Yep, they'll be like, yep, can't prove God. Faith is not related to reason. Faith is separate. I have it. I choose to have it. It is an internal uh, method for me. I'm not going to ask you to have it. They tend to be less evangelical as a result. Done. Right. That's that's what they do. So not everyone is a Thomas Aquinas. Um, there are a lot of Christians who, who, who don't do that. Um, but because faith and reason are at odds epistemologically, you actually can't have a compromise between them. You can't, you can't do both. You can't say, well, I'll pick and choose which one to use in what circumstances. You can't do that. Um, and I will paraphrase. Someone says evolution is faith. Who cares about evolution? It's weird how many Christians are like, you're an atheist. Well, evolution's wrong. I don't fucking care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care about the process. It's interesting. If I cared, I'd study it. There's there's some evidence for it. If you claim there's counter evidence, fine. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> Stop conflating evolution with atheism. Um, all right. I'm gonna paraphrase Leonard Peikoff on this because he he has a good way to explain this. So imagine that you're you're hit with this assertion in your head and you need to evaluate it. It's time. You're gonna evaluate this assertion, um, and um, at any, at any point during this analysis, you have to make a choice: should I use reason for this, or should I use something apart from reason to to make this? It could be you know part of the analysis; it doesn't have to be the whole thing. But at any given point in this analysis, you can make that choice: using reason, or use something else. Um, and of course, those are those two things are exclusive, as I've just defined them: like reason or something else. I'm, I'm calling faith right now non reason, something else, right? So. Um, Those are obviously mutually exclusive and you'll you'll have to have some way to decide when I'm going to do reason, when I'm going to do faith, you get, you're going to have to have a way to decide that. Well, how are you going to do that? Um, well, you need to have some kind of overarching management process, right? Think of them as two people at a negotiating table, right? Reason wants to be employed by you and so does faith. They're both arguing to be hired, right? Who makes the decision? Who's the hiring manager or the referee or however you want to look at it? Well, There's no third party here, right? You can't outsource this. You don't have a third party of cognition that can decide. So either reason or non-reason has to function as the referee. One of them has to double up on roles right, and make that decision. Um, One of them has to be in charge of deciding when do you use reason, when do you use not reason. Um, Well, reason can't function as that referee because reason would never choose non-reason. It would never say now's the time to not use reason. There is only reason and non-reason. So there's no reasonable way for reason to consider non-reason. Like it just wouldn't, it can't happen. Like definition, definition, definitionally, definitionally, right? But non-reason, faith can, faith can manage because it can sometimes, It can can do this arbitrarily, whimsically, based on emotional desires, there's no standards. It can choose reason sometimes and not choose reason other times. Because non-reason doesn't have, like the non-reason process, the faith process, doesn't have to justify itself in accordance with any rules of reality. It can be contradictory with reality. It can be self-contradictory. It doesn't have to justify itself, right? Only reason has rules it must follow, rules that stem from epistemological axioms, right? Law of identity, law of causality, right? only reason has to follow faith does not there are not constraints um so so faith can only faith can function as that referee um and your faith might allow you to choose reason when you feel like reasoning uh but when you don't won't choose reason right so that means that kind of any attempt to integrate both faith and reason means that fundamentally faith is in charge right it is fundamentally faith gets to decide Reason is kind of only employed as a contractor at the whim of faith, right? Um, And that's not an integration of the two. It's not a balance between the two. It's not a yin-yang. I got some reason, some faith. It's a master-slave relationship, right? Faith decides when to use reason, when it's emotionally convenient, and throws it out the window the moment that it's not convenient. That's how that works. Um, And this, by the way, was something that I struggled with when I went from being a Christian to an atheist. Uh, I struggled with this question for a lot because I tried to integrate them also. Um, So hopefully, at this point, you guys will see the need for the concept faith in the field of epistemology, right? It's pretty straightforward. It flows from the fact that reason's not always the cognitive process people appeal to. When they assert something is true, you need, you know, sometimes they use other means. Those means need a name. They need a label. That labels faith epistemologically That's just what it is. Okay. So. Someone says, we cannot know what we do not know. That is faith. No, we cannot know what we do not know is just a tautological statement, of course. Uh, Okay. Now I'm going to get back to Thomas St. Thomas, who I will remind you. A lot of respect for and Like, I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. I just, he's the inspiration for some of this tonight. So, um... Thomas argued, in essence, in essence, he and I don't think he would disagree with this. In essence, he agreed with the context of what I just said about faith, uh, using a strict epistemological definition for faith. Like if if you're if that's the field we're in, we're talking about epistemology, he's on board. But he said, that's not how people use faith; they mean other things by it, right? And so we should be able to use it how they use it because they mean other things by it. They don't always mean this. So, uh, well, let's look, right? Let's look. It's time. It's time. It's that time in the program for the Oxford English Dictionary. All right. Hopefully you guys, hopefully you guys can see this. I'll blow it up a little bit. Well, if you, we won't go through all these definitions, but you can scroll down. There's quite a lot. It turns out, Damn, Thomas is right. People do use this in a lot of different ways, right? The quality of fulfilling one's trust or promise, like, okay, you know, he's right. There's a lot of entries. I could, if I wanted, I could point to number five and say to Thomas, hey, look, it's belief or acceptance, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the the capacity to spiritually apprehend divine truths or realities beyond the limits of perception or of logical proof. Ooh. View it as either faculty of the human soul or the divine illumination. That looks more like the epistemological definition, Thomas, right? But he can just say, well, pfft, Carter, you missed 7B. Belief based on evidence, testimony, or authority. Like, wow, that, those are radically different, by the way. Authority and evidence are stuffed into the same definition. Um, so who's right? Let's take let's take a moment to talk about what dictionaries actually are and what dictionaries are not dictionaries are descriptive they tell you how people are using words at any given time right or sometimes actually how the writer of the dictionaries want you to use words right we've talked about this recently they've redefined racism i think in marion webster to include systemic oppression or whatever uh, i think i've talked about in the past like if i have got an old dictionary on the shelf behind me that Defines inflation as is expansion of the money supply, not price inflation. Like it's been kind of distorted since then. So, so, so the dictionary is this descriptive thing, generally, or or could could be could be an evangelical tool of of Wokies. Um, But if the dictionary only applies, it's only describes. Um, how the word is used to a group of clear thinking, rational people who are careful about their word choice and take definitions and, and concepts seriously and actively weed out contradictions and ambiguities in their thinking, well then, the different dictionary definitions will reflect that. They'll probably be really good. And this is why I think you don't usually see a lot of ambiguity or multiple definitions in um, in glossaries or jargon dictionaries in specialized sciences, right? Because the people using those words are using it for very clear purposes. They're dedicated to thinking very clearly, at least about that topic, right, uh, and that area of study. And they don't want ambiguity, and they want very they want clarity. So, like the, those kind of jargon dictionaries are usually pretty good. Um, but we're talking about a dictionary for just our culture today. So, what happens if you have a culture that has lost its way generations ago? What if almost no one bothers to or cares to think clearly or rationally? What if emotional word vomit passes as discourse right now? Uh, What if almost no one attempts to construct non contradictory concept hierarchies for themselves at all? Uh, What if cognitive dissonance kind of reigns supreme? What if there's no principles and everyone simply grabs the nearest uh, contextless aphorism and wields it like a broadsword, kind of slicing their way through any inconvenient truths that come their way? What if silence is violence, but also words are violence? What if math is racist and biology is a social construct? What if screaming, emoting, and censoring are standard practice? What if your psychological dysfunction becomes a badge of honor that you put in your Twitter profile? What kind of dictionary do you expect in that kind of society? Well, that's the dictionary we have. That's what we got. So now what do we do? Now what? Well, if we're trying to be clear, rational thinkers, if we are trying to promote clear, rational thought, if we're trying to communicate complex ideas, ideas that are related to philosophy and morality and politics, how do we proceed with a dictionary written in such a haze of of intellectual confusion? With what a clusterfuck of a dictionary! How do we proceed? Here's my here's my proposal, and this is what I would say the long answer to Thomas. First, we define our terms. Um, That's why I'm defining terms on this show, right? That's why I spent so much time talking about concepts and words and the relation between them. It's why I have uh, put together a standard clear format for the definitions that we're using that relate back to the concept hierarchy. Fits here, beneath this, next to these things, right? That's why I did that, Um, because definition of terms is important. So we need to define them. That's fine. That's for ourselves. Right. Um, and now when we use them, I think we need to differentiate between sending information and receiving information. Are we communicating to, or are we listening? Now, Thomas is correct that faith is used in a variety of ways, and he pointed this out in the discussion, He people use it kind of as a synonym for confidence, he said, we can easily say to a child, I have faith in you to do the right thing, and he's right. When we are receiving communication from normies, right, it would be annoying and petty and somewhat dishonest, I think, to chastise people for using the word faith in any one of its many vaguely defined ways, right? If someone says, I have faith that my kid will do well in math, don't be the prick that says, you mean confidence, faith is the belief in something apart from or contrary to reason. Like, no one's gonna wanna talk to you. They're not gonna listen to anything you have to say. It'll undermine your goal to communicate. Right. If you do run across a word that's so vague when someone uses it that you're sincerely not sure what the hell they mean, ask. It'll clarify it for you. It might actually clarify it for them. They might not even know. It might get them to notice how vague that word was and choose a different one in the future. So I think Thomas is right. When receiving communication, we don't we don't police that the people are going to use the words that as words are used, and it's irrational to try and pretend otherwise. When communicating outward, when sending, when writing, speaking, or whatever, now, I would argue you ought not be sloppy. Precision and clarity are paramount paramount here. And why? Um, Well, presumably, you're trying to foster more rational, clear thinking discourse, right, if you're listening to this and watching, right, in chat. Presumably, that's what you're here for, unless you're just here to, you know, muck things up. So not only do you kind of need to lead by example, by being clear and precise with your language, um, but you also need to do your best to make sure other people clearly understand what you're saying. And this is one of the, the reasons I'm going to the trouble of defining terms on the show and not just telling you, well, just use the dictionary. What does the dictionary say? That's the, that's the language that we should use. That's, the, that's, the, that's where it fits in the concept hierarchy. What does the dictionary say? Because you can't do that, right? The dictionary is not a substitute for clear thinking. The dictionary will be wrong, I'm putting that in quotes, not in the descriptive sense, but in the sense that its definitions will not be precise, unambiguous, or philosophically rigorous. They won't. maybe you'll run across some that are pretty good. I think we've had our share looking up in the OED of some that are decent and some that are a mess. So the dictionary won't have that precision and unambiguity and rigor. But you should. Your definition trumps the definition in the dictionary, as long as it's not so wildly different from the dictionary definition that no one understands what the hell you're talking about, right? Um, So if you're gonna use a word like faith, for example, I think there's two scenarios. Either you're using it in an epistemological sense, right, or you're not. If you're using it in an epistemological sense, uh, you should choose the right word. You should be precise. Maybe you should even define it, right? Sometimes you'll hear me on Go Feffy Break or other shows. Sometimes I... I often just define really quickly. I don't use the template, right? That template where it's like, it belongs to this category and differentiated by other things, that's that's for us. That's internal, that's for your own thinking to place it in a concept hierarchy. It's not usually how you would choose to define something for other people. Um, it's kind of clunky, right? But you've heard, you've probably heard me say things on other shows, like, well, by by faith, I mean the belief in something apart from or contrary to reason. I've said that several times on this show, obviously, but I've said it on other shows as well sometimes i will say well by reason i mean the cognitive process of non-contradictory identification i'll throw it out while i'm talking just so just so the conversation can move forward people know what i mean right um and sometimes if they argue with it they can stop and argue with the definition that's fine so if you are using it in the epistemological sense you need to be precise define it and all that stuff if you're using the word in some other sense let's take the word faith if you're using it in a sense that's not epistemological, my question to you would be why? Why are you doing that? It's a vague, loaded word, but it happens to be philosophically, epistemologically very important. It's a very important word for philosophical discussions, but it's colloquially, it's vague and loaded, right? Its meaning has been intentionally obfuscated, I think, or maybe unintentionally, but it's been obfuscated to make the distinction between reason and non-reason absolutely blurry. So use a synonym, right? If you're willing to write, I have faith in the concept of, of individual sovereignty, which is one of the phrases Thomas was using. I have faith in the concept of individual sovereignty. If you wanna write that, don't, <laughs> because you're perpetuating the misuse of an important, extremely important, epistemological term. Right? And you're doing it unnecessarily. right? You could easily write, I have confidence in the concept of individual sovereignty. And you would be just as clear. You might even be more clear doing that. Now, obviously, if there's some context in which you can't find a synonym, you're going to have to use it. Um, but look, there's a lot of synonyms for that particular use of faith. For example, you could say confidence. You could say trust. You could say uh, reliance. right? You could reword it. I'm fairly certain individual sovereignty is crucial to blah, blah, blah. Or I'm convinced that individual sovereignty is blah. Uh, in fact, when I when I looked at that sentence, I, w- I was originally like, "Oh, you could use a synonym." And then, and I thought, "Oh, if you use a synonym, you'd be more clear." And I, the more I look at that sentence, the more I think, "Well, actually, the sentence itself isn't very clear." I have faith in the concept of individual sovereignty. What what the hell does that mean? Right? Are you? Does it mean you're sure that the concept exists? Does it mean that it's important? If it's important, to whom and for what? Right? Because important is a value judgment. It needs a to whom and for what to go with it. Do you mean that it's more like philosophically fundamental than other dependent concepts? Do you mean that it's a useful concept around which to write laws? You probably mean something specific. Say what you mean. Um, I have faith in it doesn't really communicate much. So the point here when you're writing, um, and to some extent speaking, but it's a lot more difficult to be precise when you're speaking extemporaneously. Um, when you're writing, be an evangelist for precision and clarity. Be an enemy of the vague and amorphous. You're in a battle of ideas here. That's what's going on. Fight the dictionary if you need to. It's often one of your biggest enemies, right? there. You, you see the Wokies using it. Fight it, right? Don't use the word faith to mean confidence any more than you would use the word racism to mean systemic oppression or anti-vax to mean against vaccine mandates, right? Which is what they've defined it to now, right? And, you know, Yeah, you may want to understand what other people mean when they use those words, right? But we're never going to win an ideological battle by consenting to using terms in ways that are so obtuse that they're meaningless, right? So that's my reasoned position. Not proven. That's my reasoned position on the word faith. Um, And I have confidence uh, that the position is a a sound one. So as always, though, I welcome uh, feedback, counter arguments from Thomas St. Thomas. Um, or anyone else. Um, and by the way, again, I just I keep on reading. I'm not picking on him. I don't think he'll mind. But uh, he's he's probably one of my favorite writers. He's really great, and you should read read stuff that he's he writes. And he's a smart guy. So, um, he can argue with me later, or you guys can argue with me. And write something, uh, and uh, I do have I do have a history of of responding to well reasoned arguments in in YouTube comments. Not well-reasoned arguments I don't have a history of responding to. Um, but And if I don't respond there, they usually get put in a little list I've got here. And, and uh, sometimes I make a show out of them or, or whatever. So uh, the summary here, I know that the show's gone a little long. The summary here is there's there's three conclusions that you can draw when you're analyzing assertions. True, not true, arbitrary. We draw those conclusions using a process of reason. Faith is the belief in something apart from or contradictory to reason. Words are your primary weapon. Keep them sharp. Keep them clean. Keep them dangerous. All right. I'm going to look through chat for a moment, which I know is kind of awkward because, like, I'm sitting here in silence. I Sometimes I prefer having someone else on the show. But um, any is there any other stuff that I should be addressing? And, like, I don't know. Someone in chat. Shout out if there's something I'm supposed to be doing and I missed, that's important. I don't think there is. I see a lot of debate and argument back and forth about stuff. Um, Someone writes, I have certainty in the concept of individual sovereignty and sanctity within all sapient beings. Well, that's clear, right? Um, So... All right. I don't see anything else I need to address in chat, uh, but feel free to hit me up in uh, on YouTube for comments. Uh, Richard Pets does say, precision and accuracy are both necessary for reason thinking. Exactly. Well put. Okay. So, as always, I do love suggestions and feedback, as I keep saying. Uh, be assertive with that subscribe button. Um, and... Uh, Thanks to those of you who uh, who support the show uh, financially, it, it means a lot to me. Um, personally, I this, I love doing this stuff. I would like to dev- devote as much time as possible to it and more resources. And you guys, you guys who financially support us, you know, thank you. All right, go to unsayspace.com space.com if you want want to uh, check out any of our other content. Pay attention to live streams that are coming up. Buy merch, anything like that. And uh, I think that's it. I think we can call it a day. Call it an evening. Uh, Have a good one, everyone. And I will see you. We have a covfefe break. I think the next thing out, I don't think there's a great reset tomorrow uh, with Ian. Uh, I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I think the next show we have is covfefe break on Friday. And the two guests that we have, speaking about faith, actually, uh, this is unintentional, but the two guests we have are Mark Pellegrino, who's, uh, I would say, Pretty staunch atheist friend of mine, uh, but brilliant and and uh, and a nice guy. Uh, and Carrie's preacher, um, Bradley Helgerson, who is also a brilliant and nice guy, but clearly not an atheist. Uh, so that will be an interesting discussion. All right, thanks everyone. Um, have a good evening, and uh, we'll see you next time. And let's hope, let's hope this jury doesn't fuck it up.
1: To be honest, I am running out of patience with the following individuals. Here's a fun fact. Experts agree that inflation is good for you. As a reminder, self-defense can only be used as a last resort. You are legally required to first see if your death effectively deters your attacker. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't.